Oh, wouldn't it be nice if only we could just hit women. Iron Brains, a podcast with an abiding commitment to always delivering to our audience the emotional truths that comport with our preconceived notions about the world, while at the same time aggrandizing ourselves in the most unfalsifiable way possible, while also flattering the moral sensibilities of our audience. A podcast whose podcast Arnold Palmer is 70% emotional truth, 25% overblown blowhardiness played for laughs, and 5% crushing melancholic gloom and on my name is Bob, sitting across the way from my good friend and co-host. That's Abe. How you doing tonight, Abe? Doing well, Bob. Yeah, here we are. Lori's here too. How you doing tonight, Lori? I'm fine. Lori's fine. Tonight is Tuesday, September the 19th, 2023. Marking 64 years since the uh, entry of my mother into uh, the world. Happy birthday, Mom. Oh, look at that. Just remembered at the last second tonight to send her some well wishes. I will acknowledge here in this forum, because I'm not great at uh, communicating here in our bogus future, as I'm sure my wife would attest. Abe, did you have a good weekend? Yes, I did. Uh, no one's birthday. Uh on my end, uh, but it was uh, a lot of fun. Just hung out with some friends. Went to a show. I'll uh, mention it at the end. Uh, went to a live Ooh, show instead of like a, a movie. A tease for later. Stick around yes. for a couple of hours, everybody. Find out <laughs> where true. Abe was this weekend. Or skip to the end of the podcast. That's true. Right. <laughs> Let your fingers do the walking over to that little slidey bar. Because I know everybody comes. I mean, everybody. You know, nobody's here for the blowhard reactions to the news of the week. They want to know what movies Abe went to. Last week, and whether or not it was a movie, which is the entire depth of the review that he often gives. Uh, We weren't here last night. It's a Tuesday. Uh, Sort of going to be, I think, our possibly our new plan is to record on Tuesdays. Much better for me. Oh, well, there you go. Wasn't great for me tonight. We had a PTO meeting, and no, but you have very little going on in your life, so. The more it's much easier for me on Tuesday. I don't know how much I want to talk about the PTO situation or how wise it would be. The, yeah. Like the reason not to talk about it is that first of all, you don't want to talk about those sorts of specifics, like in this sort of semi-public situation where we're in here. But also, like if anybody was mad at me and found out about, like mad at me related to my involvement with the PTO, and then found out about the podcast. Like it would just be the end of my relationship or my my position on the PTO board. Like there, there, it's me being outed as the host of this podcast is not a survivable event. Oh yeah, uh, just just because you are on the podcast, or because they're, they're going to find something that you said at some point. Because like who's going to sift through 
countless it was, hours. It was this episode 159, he I think. Said that said some were... truly awful things. Right, but somebody has to go through the, 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 the trouble to like listen to all of it. That's right? true. That's like they would have to listen. <laughs> that would be so boring. They would have to, have to listen to like... It doesn't take long for me to say something that would offend the sensibilities of the people who right. are seeking offense, right? Like, I don't right. think it would be that hard. Right. But, I mean, that would, again, still, it's, it's, it's our protective coding, just like, just to just tire people out to where, like, ah, oh, fuck it. I'm not going right. to find anything. So, obviously, I'm not going to talk about the PTO. So, any uh, prying ears, just don't bother. You can just go away now because we're definitely not going to talk about my frustration with the PTO. <laughs> In the next few minutes, so you could just yeah, I can just skip just, to the, the just movie. Skip ahead, skip to the, to the movie end. part at the end. About hour forty-five, hour fifty in, you hear Abe. That's what I do. Talk about the cartoons that he's been watching. <laughs> All right, so there's a Chick Fil A situation you'll recall from uh, 2012 with the gays, right? Yes. Like, uh, how, the, was there a story that came out? What happened? How did people become aware that they were donating to causes that people didn't agree with? I think someone just looked. I think they okay. brag about it on their – I remember eating at a Chick-fil-A after hearing like Chick-fil-A's mean to gays. Right. And I remember seeing like we donate to this family-friendly thing and it's like all it takes is for you to look into that charity. So like one more step. To see right. – yeah, okay. yes, one more step. Okay. Right. We donate to this family-friendly charity. And then you go to the family-friendly charity, and it's like, are you tired of your homosexual children being all gay? Send them to us. We'll, we'll, we're going to camp the gay right on out of them. Like, not good, we, right? Like, this is, it was, there's basically no defending it. Uh, the, the Chick-fil-A foundation, whatever it was back then, I forget the name of it, but like S. Truett Cathy, who's the founder, and Dan Cathy, who's the founder's son, uh, we're using their foundation to direct monies towards negative, uh, like like people who are very much opposed to the lifestyle, as it were, uh, however you want to phrase it, and and not in any sort of like, not in a way that's defensible to most people in the current day and age, including uh, like conversion therapy nonsense and and other things like that. And they were rightly at the time castigated for their connection to those things. And I arguably, uh, a sort of great moral outrage worked. They stopped uh, sending money to those particular charities. Right. They stopped bragging about it anyway. I think it's like the Winship or Winstead Foundation. I had Google that up real quick. Wind shape. I was I was nearly there. Oh. It was the wind shape foundation, and they were directing their money to bad things. And uh, as of 2012, 2013 or so, they had sort of announced that they were going to try to do better. And then in 2019, they got in trouble again because information was released that they had been donating to the Salvation Army. And to the Fellowship for Christian Athletes, that they had multi-year agreements with those two organizations, which people – then you have to start doing the dot connecting to get upset about them, those organizations from that same point of view. Bob knows all about the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Right. Um, I was – whatever. We don't have to go into my personal history with the FCA. But – It's pertinent, but you don't have to get into it. The FCA and the Salvation Army 
have been known to, you know, I mean, the Salvation Army is a Catholic organization. The FCA is something closer to a, it's not Catholic by any means. It's some sort of, you know, new Christian softcore rock and roll kind of organization that uh, wants to help build leadership uh, in schools or whatever. But like they had gotten in trouble because they were asking kids to take purity pledges and to oh. declare like, like, you know, like that sort of shit. Right. And but, you know, uh, real quick, I mean, just for context, I mean, this is not like Burger King. I mean, Chick-fil-A, their whole angle is religious from the get go. Right. They take Sundays off because God took that day off or something. Uh, no, it's so- to spend time with your family and go to church. It's so their employees. Right. Had so that so that no one had to work on Sunday so that right. they would go to church. Right, but that suggests that they are. I mean, the the the, the donations that they're making to these causes are. It's not coming out of left field. It's like they're religious based kind of angle, and they're supporting religious based charities, and some of that mm-hmm. money is used for things that people don't approve of. Right. Anyway, the 2019 charity or, or controversy comes because of those two organizations, and Chick Fil A says, "Look, these were longstanding partnerships. We, we had multi-year commitments, and we're no longer going to be donating money to even those organizations going forward." And they released some corporate gobbledygook about how we're just going to focus on like education and feeding the hungry and that sort of thing moving forward. And like they they wash their hands. And they, like, there's nothing that they can do ultimately about the fact that Dan Cathy remains a seemingly uh, sincere Christian in his beliefs. And he, at, to some extent, every time you order a tray of Chick-fil-A nuggets or get a sandwich from there, you're enriching Dan Cathy in some small one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent sort of way. And in that sense, you're contributing maybe to a worldview that you don't agree with Uh to which I would issue the challenge that if that is going to be your standard for how you interact with the world around you, uh, you were going to yeah. always fail <laughs> to live up to that standard. Uh, whatever. The point is Chick-fil-A is no longer making a point of sending their charitable donations in the direction of things that got them in trouble before. They've moved on from that. It remains sort of a meme in – is certain circles, right? And people who believe themselves to be acting in allyship with the LGBTQ plus community, people still find it unseemly to interact with Chick-fil-A in any way. We, I know people who won't eat at Chick-fil-A because of their past associations with these bad charities, which is a long set up way of saying that the PTO that I'm a part of is running a fundraiser, uh, one of many fundraisers, where you go if uh, on one particular night, if parents in our area go to the Chick-fil-A and they say, look, we are with this school and it's that school's spirit night, uh, Chick-fil-A will donate 15% of the proceeds from the parents who show up and say the magic words back to the parent-teacher organization, right? So we might make $50 or something. Like if we're lucky, we're going to make a small pile of money because a handful of families will have gotten dinner at Chick-fil-A that night. Again, this is one of currently a half a dozen things on the PTO calendar of ways in which we are raising money uh, with different businesses and different things that we're doing around town. Uh, This upset, uh, when it was announced, this somewhat predictably in our uh, progressive little college town, upset some folks uh, who raised an objection to us associating with or associating the school with 
the evil chicken company. Never mind the fact that it's no longer the case that Chick-fil-A does the bad thing anymore, right? Like it's it it sort of doesn't matter. And I recognize that uh it it is a it's a symbol of something to these people that they simply cannot get past. But it's weird to me to insist that everyone else also should not be able to get past it. Like it's a it's a strange thing to insist that and then of course like the pushback is why don't you just do it with some other business well it's like well because this business makes it super easy for us to do it and people fucking love this restaurant i don't know if you noticed but like right. uh they 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 do 20 billion dollars in revenue on uh, six days of business too you know, on like, six yeah. days of business in terms of per store dollars they blow away i think every other fast food restaurant on the planet just in terms of the amount of revenue that they're able to generate per location so like they're in the top 25 in terms of revenue generated but in terms of revenue per store they're in the top like three or four like they just they make a ton of money on a relatively small amount of stores compared to like subway or mcdonald's or whatever like and the you you can't even get in the fucking drive-through line or at dinner time around here like it's wrapped around the building twice it's crazy how busy they are all the time and you get in the drive-through line wrapped around the door you're still out in 15 minutes right yeah they 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 run a well-oiled machine actually um where i live uh they built one like a stone's throw away from me now and like anytime Chick-fil-A is open, you know, it's not Sunday or anything like that. I never see it where it's like empty. It always seems like there's a lot of activity, but you're right, Lori. They get you through pretty quickly. They get you through. It's one of my favorite uh, YouTube videos is I'll send it later because it's not pertinent, but I love it. Uh, Bob, quick question. Uh, Just for some context, like was there some other partner the school used in the past that's different than Chick-fil-A? It's like, is there something unique about this year with Chick-fil-A? I think this is the first year that we've done a Chick-fil-A fundraiser. I mean, obviously. I mean, whatever. That we It's not like it was a big pushback. We got one email from one teacher who was uh, not pleased with the association. And, like, we didn't – like, there was, a, there was a feeling of should we just cancel it or should we go through with it? And, like, what are our actual options here? Because you, the problem is that when you say – why don't you like is when the, the the response is why don't you just go with literally anyone else instead of this which is only going to cause potential harm to people how do you respond to that in a way that doesn't make you seem like a callous monster and like it's it's such a shitty way and it's there's nothing wrong with voicing your opposition to something that you feel passionate about right i understand that but like you 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 leave the opposition or the 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 people on the pto board in a no win situation where a response to you that comports with uh, that, that recognizes your feelings and says, you're right, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings here, which we obviously don't. We don't want to make anyone feel like they can't participate in something uh, that benefits the whole community in the way that bringing in money for the PTO sort of does. Uh, so wh- that are bad and we'll just cancel the thing. Uh, I think that that makes a fundamental mistake if that had been our response about what is and is not political, right? And right. to... To cancel that fundraiser would be a political act in the eyes of a whole bunch of other people who hadn't even considered Chick-fil-A and and, sh- and spending a dollar there 
on a moral plane at all, right? Like it just doesn't occur to them that where you bought your fried chicken dinner has anything to do with your per- personal morality in a way that matters in the world, right? And and to insist that the PTO publicly cancel, which they didn't do, to be fair. They're sort of asking us to, but it's not like there was an insistence. There were, there were fucking boycotts. There was no also, picketing. Also, like, I appreciate that this person wrote an email to you and not, like, a public how dare they. Right. You know, like, I, I feel like these days a very normal response would have been a more public, I can't believe that your PTO is doing this, right. rather than a calm, collected email to the uh, the entity they have a problem with. Right, and we responded, I think, professionally and courteously and with a great deal of respect and acknowledged the feeling of the person while at the same time, like, this is what we're doing, we did this, and we're not going to not do it. Uh, and I didn't include... Like, and for the record, like they stopped doing this years ago. Like they, they'd no longer give money to quote unquote hate groups. If that's what you believe they were doing back then, it's simply not true that that is how that corporation continues to present itself in the world. And the fact that it once did seem like, it seems obvious to me that whatever price they were going to pay, they have paid already. And that ironically, of course, the price was the opposite, right? Because this became a rallying cry for right. the worst people on the planet to go have Chick-fil-A night uh, from the local church group or whatever, right? Like Mike Huckabee is getting on his Fox program and saying, meet me at the Chick-fil-A for Chick-fil-A night uh, because th- they give money to these organizations that we actually believe in and let's not have them be bullied or whatever. Um, like that's not what we're trying to do here. It's just, it's a, I, I understand and to some extent, I can appreciate the instinct to say what you really think and and try to make your voice heard. But at the same time, like, it's just I've never understood this desire to because ultimately it comes down to a question of like, how much can you control what happens to your dollar once it leaves your pocket? And if you really want to play that game, I seriously don't understand how you can comport yourself to that standard in the world at all, ever. Like, I don't know right. how yeah. Yeah, you can that, be in the world. Right. You know, uh, Bob, I, I do have a, a couple of questions. So the, you know, I always, like, whenever somebody makes a case about something, I always kind of just kind of take what they're saying at face value, right? So, like, back then, people had a problem with what Chick-fil-A did. You, you mentioned two occasions uh, where they were caught up doing something that people didn't approve of, right? So the people who are today, like in 2023, uh, still hold the view that money should not be sent their way because uh, despite what they say, they may be still funneling money to something I don't agree with, right? So like, you know, what is the what is their thinking of like what seems to me like open-ended punishment, right? Like, you know, so like Mike Tyson was, was accused of doing some sort of sexual assault to somebody. He was found guilty. He went to jail three years, he comes back Muslim, and then, you know, he goes on with his life, and people, you know, you see him everywhere now, right? He's part of just general society, right? There's no, like, boycott Mike Tyson. He's cuddly grandpa pigeon-loving Mike Tyson at this point, yeah. Right, so, like, whenever there's a structure around something like... He's living O.J. Simpson's best life. Right, yeah, (laughs) and and, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Well, yeah, that, that is true. But, like, so, like, whenever there's some sort of structure to 
the punishment, people seem to be like, okay, they paid whatever, uh, and now we shouldn't have this drip, 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 you know, blacklisting kind of thing, right? But when it comes to something like this, maybe people think that, you know, they didn't actually uh, suffer any consequence for their actions, right? Because like you said, there was this counter push and their sales, I think, like even ticked up for a little bit, didn't it? Like it, it didn't yes. impact their their bottom line. So maybe that's why people still harbor this sort of resentment to this day. But like sometimes I think like, you know, whatever you believe about something, like come up with some sort of punishment and then like it should be something finite, right? Because like is the idea just to blacklist Chick-fil-A forever? Or yes, until- because it's it's not anything related to the current reality. It's just a symbolic act. These people became a symbol of LGBTQ hate, and therefore any any association with them moving forward is signaling your support for that mindset is is the decision that these people have made. And like, okay, if that's where you want to direct your energy, uh, then I guess by all means. If you think that that is a meaningful and morally relevant act in the world, then by all means. But to apply that same morality to anyone else outside of you strikes me as uh, as as sort of not okay. Right. Like it's a, we live in a, a pluralistic world where you don't have to necessarily agree with anything that Chick-fil-A once supported or didn't support. To me, it should have no bearing on, on how you imagine other people should or should not comport themselves in the world. Like, I don't know. I, I think that that's, that, that it's it summed up in this, this notion of, of the symbolic act that these people have decided that any dollar sent to Chick-fil-A is somehow uh, another bullet fired in the culture war uh, when like I I don't know how I don't know how you live in the world if that's the way that you if that's the way that you see things I, right. I, I sincerely but you know, what, don't what's interesting is that the only way because it is a unsustainable way to go but like the only way you would you can uh, function is to not look into any other company, right? Because if you did like a, if you went on a fact finding mission on every product you have, any food you have, you're gonna find some uh, some things that you disagree with, right? So like you're gonna start making more of these choices, like it, you know, like I, I think, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe it is. It's like uh, you can't unring the bell. Like Chick Fil A is forever associated to be on that side, and so like there's nothing really they could do, uh, but you couldn't apply that standard to every other thing that you consume or you buy. To say nothing of the fact that if we're looking to figure things out in terms of, of harm, like the amount of harm that Chick-fil-A did to the LGBTQ community in the sending of however much money they sent to those charities, which did work, that, that took that money and then did work that uh, fulfilled their mission of trying to eradicate uh, gays or whatever or, or to convert gay children or whatever the plan was right. and i'm not downplaying the sort of harm that can be done psychologically to a person who has to endure that sort of thing or has to grow up in a in a world where their parents don't fucking think that they are the way that they ought to be like that's a real bummer right. but those people exist they like, they've always existed they will continue to exist uh but that's not really the point that i'm making the point is is that I've forgotten the point that I was making uh, naturally. Um, the harm done by them giving money back in 2012 to the gay conversion centers and the harm done 
by them giving money to the FCA and the Salvation Army, which, by the way, I think is probably minimal compared to whatever harm was done in 2012 and, and before that, absolutely pales in comparison to the harm done by filling people with uh, fried chicken and waffle fries and ice cream uh, multiple times a day for years and years and years, right? Like, it's not even... It's not even close. Like it is bad. It's the food is bad for you because they're uh, huge calorie bombs full of salt and saturated fats uh, that that cause heart disease and possibly cancer on the long run. Right? Like the the if you're looking for a moral actor here, I can assure you that as you're going down the uh, five six lane strode. Uh, in your little suburb there, that the Chick-fil-A and the McDonald's and the Zaxby's and the Raising Cane's and the Popeye's and the KFC and the fucking Domino's and the Mexican restaurant, there's no moral heroes here in terms of what they're doing to the population. Uh, but because they've become this symbol or briefly became this symbol of uh, sort of Christian conservative corporation garbage uh, a decade ago, uh, they sort of they have to live with that to a certain extent. And I understand that it's going to loom large in people's minds for a long time. I just don't know. I don't know what it accomplishes uh, to continue holding on to something like that, that that. I mean, the change happened, right? Like you won the fight. They stopped donating to the organizations that you were upset about them donating to. You won. Take the I don't know what going on uh, about it at this point and accomplishes. they didn't need to. Right. They right. could have continued yeah, to do it. Yeah, it's, it's not like Bud Light where they lost money. They were doing just fine. Yeah, you're right, Laura. They could have just continued to just dole out money to whomever. Right. This is a front in the culture they war that you won. Nice. Chick-fil-A retreated from that from that front in the culture war. They said we would rather sell fried chicken to the maximum number of people without causing this sort of harm to our brand, right? The, this weird psychological thing that doesn't actually exist. But we don't want to harm that entity as we hope to go from 2,500 restaurants that we had in 2012 to whatever the number, 4,500 now to someday... Like, like 10,000 restaurants or something, like whatever the goal is. And by the way, for what it's worth, as silly as this conversation is, out of all of them, in terms of the franchise model, which is a fucking, uh, can often be this really awful way of conducting business, Chick-fil-A doesn't allow people to scoop up 30, 40, 50, 60 restaurants. And that then- That's why their service is so good. And then funnel all of the profits to one asshole who owns all of these uh, restaurants in a region or something like that. These are owner-operator stores where the person who owns the place has to spend time uh, on the floor in the store all of the time and doesn't pull out millions of dollars in profit from these places. They they make a very healthy living, far more uh, healthy living than their- their employees do certainly, uh, but that that's a function of the of the labor model. But if their employees uh, are just doing what pleasures them, so yeah. Also, they're, they're, anyway. they're, there's no uh, shortage of staff. Anytime you go to Chick Fil A, there's always like sufficient number of people to do whatever. It's the, they are the only ones that through this pandemic, when every every other fast food restaurant was having trouble staffing, Chick Fil A was doing just fine. Right. Yeah, and I don't fucking care. Like, I don't want to defend Chick-fil-A. I don't care to defend Chick-fil-A in any way. What I think matters is that people should be permitted to go about their lives doing the normal activities of interacting with the world around them without suffering from the sort of crushing feeling that every 
act that I do is weighted with this uh, this somebody else's moralism, right? right. Like it, it's just not any of your business to apply those sorts of things. Like unless there's a great and obvious crime right. happening, yes. right? And and so yeah, when you see what you saw in 2012, by all means, do the thing. Accept the victory. It's sort of it's it's something that you ask uh, out of a lot of these uh, activist groups, which is you got the thing that you wanted. Why do you? Why does it continue at this point? To say nothing of the fact that I spent like. Uh, a great deal of time and effort in these stupid PTO emails. My job is uh, as communications guy. It's not a job. Is to no, it's not a job. My it's a role. The role is to write the goddamn emails for the PTO, and so I put a lot of effort into it. And they make them funny and interesting and good, and they're full of jokes. And, and he's gotten a lot of good feedback. Gotten a lot of good feedback, except tonight I got uh, feedback from someone who brought up the Chick Fil A thing first as not the sort of thing that we want to be doing in our school community, which, okay, fine, I get it. And then was like, and you have to consider that as cute and as funny as the emails are, there are a lot of uh, non-English speaking people who uh, aren't going to feel included because the uh, Google Translate won't allow the humor to come through. When they stick it in there, uh, going from English to Pashto, like you've got to be fucking kidding Come me! On. That, that's for real. A hundred percent for real. The concern was that the Afghan refugees uh, would not be able to, would not feel included in the in the joke, and therefore would be made uncomfortable and wouldn't understand what was going on with the PTO emails. Which, first of all, if they're reading them. Great. I'll be happy uh, as best I can to uh, try to use Google Translate myself to see whether or not the <laughs> jokes are coming through. Just run my email through the Google Bard uh, with the help of uh, Afghan language and maybe I make some good jokes, uh, which I'm sure they would find hilarious. But our, our white allies here just horrendously offended by. Uh, and speaking of which... Let's not ask the Afghan refugees their feelings about the gays, about about conversion therapy, about the about the fucking chicken, right? Should we be should we be asking the Muslims uh, who've arrived from Afghanistan about how they uh, their feelings about the homosexual lifestyle? I don't. I'm not sure that uh, you'd be so quick to ally yourselves with that particular uh, way of thinking. This just uh, is. Just seems like it's such an out of left field kind of thing to bring up. Like, is this grounded in some sort of conversation he had with somebody who English is not their first language, or he just imagining possible no, issues? This, no, this is this is liberal no, brain. No, they can't rot. speak English. To, Sorry, to I I, I don't that. usually like to talk about things in these terms, but this is just the brain rot of a liberal who means well and has taken one or twenty too many. Uh, inclusivity DEI seminars or something. But like the idea that like setting aside the fact that for years, nobody read a PTO email from start to finish. Like it just never fucking happened. Nobody is reading the PTO email from start to finish. You'd have to be a broken brained person to do that. And I put together like 
just uh, uh, it's just fucking great. You remember my fantasy football recaps from years ago? Uh, those were awesome, right? And you read those, uh, maybe at least uh, first couple paragraphs. Anyway, these similar. They're they're grabbing the attention. They're getting people involved. People are excited. Uh, they're 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 throwing money at us for the PTO at this point. And now every single time I write an email for this stupid organization going forward, at the back of my mind is going to be, but what about the poor Afghan refugees who aren't going to get my jokes? Like that will be that will I know that that concern will be front of mind for some small non-zero number of people who are going to be getting these emails, who will see the email and snidely, and it won't be snide in their heads. They'll just be, they'll be upset on behalf of people who simply do not exist, right? right? Like the idea that I should shape the content of the email such that Google Translate will turn it into Pashto in a way. What? It's Pashto. I can't say the word. Obviously, I'm not sensitive to these concerns. That's the whole point. Is like, how does a person, how could you ever construct an English language sentence even that you were confident? Like the idea that you could convey a complex idea or even a fairly simple idea in such a way that you can plug it into the stupid Google Translate and you're positive that, I'm not positive that an English language sentence is going to turn out in somebody else's brain when it's in English. English, right? The way that I intended it to. There's like a 60% chance that somebody reads a sentence I wrote in English and their native language is English. They've never spoken another fucking word in any other language and they're going to think the exact opposite of the thing that I put in the sentence. I've seen it happen many times. And if you want to say that's the fault of the sentence, by all means. But you're fucking wrong because the sentence was great. So fuck you. But (laughs) Anyway, it's certainly not going to help if I have to further imagine what Google's going to do to it when it puts it into another language. You're out of your mind. What are you talking about? So you, you said that, you know, uh, mean well, uh, you know, this is kind of like uh, some liberal kind of uh, way of thinking. But, like, I'm going to be less charitable and say, like, it is such an absurd thing to bring up as a consideration. It is such an absurd thing to bring up. Abe, what you mean to say is... As an immigrant. As a, yes, yeah, I'm going to And then you keep my, talking. Yes. <laughs> then keep talking. But it is so absurd that the only logical reason I can think that somebody would bring that up is just to grandstand, to say I'm a like more considered person than you. Because like to actually take what he's saying and actually apply it in real in the real world, it would grind everything to a halt. You couldn't do anything. Because like why stop there? Why not have it like in Braille also because somebody can't – I mean like th- there are just so many – They have the speech to text. Right. The... Oh, another example of that. But what I'm saying is there are does other the voice, audiences. Does the voice of the joke audiences. translate into the speech to text right. when the stupid robot reads it back to them? No, I'll bet it doesn't. I'll bet that all of the context clues are lost when the robot reads it out loud. Right. But there, there's no – there's no – I don't think they they actually think somebody would actually take the time to do that. They're just saying that. And as a, now that I think of it, I suspect that the whole conversation is is for the similar reasons. Like they're not actually asking for them to take an action because they would they would try to galvanize some more support if they're trying to do that. They're just like, look, I'm a good person. I'm bringing up these things, like these stupid fucking things that nobody would consider. Like they're bringing it up because they're a good person again. I'm reading into this that this person is less than uh, than honest, but maybe that's not accurate for me to say. But like, 
to me, like those two things. I mean, the first one I was going to give him a mulligan. All right, you know, what a stupid idea, but okay. Everybody has those. But that second thing, the, hey, I know these jokes are funny, but what about somebody from the Pashto region? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, that is, you're just saying Do things. you know how fucking condescending it would be for me to send out a version for English as a second language or non-English speakers? And it, like, oh, man. It just, it, it makes me so fucking mad. I got home. I said, what's wrong? You said nothing. You lied to me. I just don't understand why we... Bad husband. Why should we talk down to these people? And, like, in what way does... In what way does... Because here's the other end of it, right? Which is that I'm not trying to communicate with everybody when I write these things. Right. That just that must be stated out loud, and it, it's an obvious fact that this is when I write these fucking I don't know how long it was fucking two thousand word long uh, email or or post about what the PTO is up to this month, the newsletter that I sent out. It's not for everybody. That you, there's no such thing as a, a thing that is worth consuming that is for everybody. That's right. like, it's just a fact. Well, especially because you're right, because the emails are for the people who read the emails. And then there's the flyers that are for the people who don't read the emails. And then there's a poster somewhere, you know, like there's different, right. there's different outlets for the same message. Right. The, that's that. It, that's a great point, which is that like the the invitation to the PTO meeting went Take, out taking business classes, Bob, in a number of different forums, including in a flyer that went home in every kid's book bag uh, twice last week. Right, so like the word has gotten out in any way that it needs to be gotten out, and then you just throw in the fact that I'm able to communicate with people in a way that is uh, sort of more interesting than they're used to, and like they they appreciate that fact, or at least some of them do. And then for somebody else to be like, yeah, but uh, think about the dummies, because that's the other end of this. This is not just about the English as a second language, or the or the the, the foreign folks who are here now as as refugees. This is a concern about how inclusive are you being for the dummies because not everybody is going to get all of your jokes they're not going to understand what's going on you know what they didn't show up last year either right they didn't show up the year before that nobody fucking showed up nobody shows up you know why because when somebody does show up to try and to do a good job and to make a difference somebody fucking shows up and scolds them for the way that they've decided to try to make that difference and that's that's why because every you show up there too and you try to make them feel dumb like that, like what are you really yeah. accomplishing here besides that? Abe, you're familiar with Hassan Minaj, correct? Uh, yes. Um, Patriot Act. He was like a correspondent for The Daily Show. And then he had his own show, Patriot Act, that I think lasted two seasons. And he's, you know, he's made the rounds. I think he did like Comedian. a White House correspondence dinner once, like he was the. The host, yeah. During the comedian. Trump years, when they stopped inviting Trump, where uh, Trump wasn't going to show yeah, I anyway, think he just didn't yeah. show up. I think he, the invitation was there. Hassan Minaj, also the author of two Netflix specials, or uh, sorry, the stand-up comedian of two Netflix specials, uh, the, the King's Jester, I believe, is the more recent one. Homecoming King is the first one that he had a few years ago, and has made uh, something of a name for himself in the post-Daily Show days as sort of the brown John Stewart slash John Oliver type, right? Like his... Right. 
and that's not me identifying him in that way. That is the way that the culture has sort of latched onto him was that he was a, an important representative of the South Asian community, the the Indians, uh, the Indian Muslims right. as well. Yeah. Uh, he's a an Indian guy who's also a Muslim. And a lot of his comedy, so-called, uh, has been focused on his experience of being a teenager, a young teenager, in the wake of 9-11. I think he's a couple years younger than we yeah, are. Yeah, but around the same age group as, as About us, the same uh, age, yeah. Right. And, and I, you know, actually, uh, up until this article came out, and maybe even beyond, uh, based on how people are reacting to the story, uh, he's on the short list for permanent host of The Daily Show with which still exists somehow and is on Comedy Central, which right. I still exists Trevor somehow. Because Trevor Noah announced that he was leaving yeah, he, like yeah, a he while announced ago, he was right? leaving some time ago. And they were just kind of doing a, a rotation of guests. And like, you know, they give you like a week-long stint. You know, they would just throw anybody in there. You know, Chelsea Handler, you know, Hassan Minaj. Other people would, I think Sarah Silverman did one week. So like just to kind of see who would be the fit. And I think they said he was one of the people that they were considering. What happened to him? All right. So there was an article that came out of the New Yorker last Wednesday or Thursday, I believe. Uh, maybe even later. Maybe it was Friday. I don't know. Whatever. Last week, an article came out in the New Yorker. Uh, go ahead and spend your free New Yorker of no. the Month article on it. Uh, i tell you to tell me about it. Yeah, we will. Uh, but it's absolutely worth reading. Essentially, this reporter had attempted to fact check some of the stories that he had told in his stand-up and was unable to uh, verify a lot of the relevant information. And this was not just limited to things that he had said in his stand-up, but ways that he had talked about these experiences to reporters afterwards, reporters who decided uh, that it wasn't worth the effort of uh, checking those facts. So it's uh, just well, to get this criticism. Well, checking the facts just, uh, by going to the source, you know. Is it true, Hassan? Yes. <laughs> just right, right. So just to get this this part out of the way up front, which is the dumbest possible response and I think misses the entire point here, which is that people are saying – and Whoopi Goldberg had this take. Uh, she's the most famous person who had this – who took this position publicly. But this has been the position of a lot of people in comment sections and on Twitter that I've seen as a reaction to this story, which is, you fucking dummies. You thought that the stand-up comic got up there and just told the truth about themselves and just told stories as they actually happened? Like, do you really think that uh, when a comic gets on stage and says, so I was in the coffee shop this morning, that they were literally, literally right. <laughs> at the coffee shop this morning and had this hilarious anecdote happen rather than the obvious fact that they've been... Uh, Louis C.K. has talked about that too, They've been in general. Right, they've been honing this act hundreds of times right. over the course of the last two or three years until they get it exactly right. Like, what are you, a dummy? You actually, did you think that every time a stand-up comic went on stage to tell a story, that that was supposed to be the gospel truth about something that actually happened? Right. Uh, and no, uh, I don't think anybody. Uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody actually thinks that. But I think if you tell a story about how you opened some uh, some hate mail uh, right. from a fan or a, 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 a not a fan but an anti fan, uh, someone who yeah. hates you, a hater, what, a hater, <laughs> an anti fan, uh, and and in the opening, <laughs> is, is that of how the, Antifa started? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, in the opening of the letter, 
you spray what you believe to have been anthrax right. onto your toddler child, right? Like you open this, you're just open in the kitchen. I'm a son. I'm opening the mail. Yeah. And I just, I threw anthrax onto my daughter and we rushed to the hospital because I thought I had anthraxed my daughter and it turned out that she was fine. So you don't have to worry about it because right. it wasn't actually anthrax. It was just some un- unidentified white powder. Right. Uh, and then you go on to like talk about that not only in your stand-up show but also in interviews elsewhere, like with with actual people, uh, not not just an audience, right? In a different setting uh, where it's not like a set of punchline. There are like some other media outlet is talking about it, right? To say, and we'll get to this, but to say nothing of the fact that there never was a punchline, like right. this, <laughs> that, and, and that's that's the problem. You know, like you 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 had. Uh, brought up Whoopi Goldberg, but but she's not the only one. This has kind of like been, I mean, this is not scientific, but just the general reaction has been service level, no shit. Everything a comedian says is in service of a joke, of the punchline, right? Which generally is true, but it's not true in specific cases such as this one. I think the uh, the example that that I brought up, and you can, there's countless others you can point to, but like there's another comedian, Tick Notaro, and she was diagnosed with some sort of cancer, and it happened that week. And you know these comedians are always going up on stage practicing. So at her next you know open mic or whatever these people do, uh, she opened with like, "Hey, welcome to I'm happy to be here. I have cancer," and she just kind of went right into the joke. She tried to make light of it and and talk about her anxieties and all that stuff, but kind of make it like funny in a storytelling kind of way. Like if that turned out to be just, oh, are you kidding me? I didn't have cancer. I was just saying I had cancer. People will react to it much differently than if Dave Chappelle's punchline to like seeing a baby in a strip club. Like, oh, there wasn't actually no baby in a strip club. That was just a joke. I mean, obviously that's a joke, right? I mean, there's a, right. there seems to be like a, a deliberate misreading of what happened to, 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 to reach that conclusion that it's just a joke, right? Because like... Like you say, it it was kind of like setting up the world to make some other point. It wasn't even like a joke. Like, what's the punchline to? He doesn't tell jokes. Like you watch his stand up, he doesn't exactly tell jokes. He tells stories right. that are inflected with his particular brand of humor, which is mostly just like every once in a while he yells something ridiculous and jumps up and down on stage. He does that frenetic like- energy and the hand gestures and like he's you know he does a whole like. The way he kind of does things, I, I could see how people would, would find it funny. And he'll, I mean, he'll no, pepper I, in a joke under, or two. I understand that he is an, he's an amusing character right. to watch do his shtick, but it's, it, it, to me, it doesn't particularly appeal because I don't like. There's no joke there. Oftentimes, it seems with him that there, there's just something we're supposed to laugh at his audacity and the fact that like he's. He also presents himself as like supremely in control. Like he's very much like a. I mean, hair slick back. Like, there's just something like very used car salesman about him to me that I don't trust him in the first place. And I'm sure that uh, many think peace will tell me that that is because of my inherent uh, bias and racism. Uh, but uh, almost goes without saying. You know. To be fair, though, uh, it's sort of borne out here, uh, apparently, uh, based on uh, this interview in the last week that I shouldn't have trusted him. But like, so there's that. The the it, and it, again, to make your point, there is no joke about the anthrax on his child. It's just an attempt to explain the wor- explain the racism of the world and his position 
in it. Like, it's not like there was some great hilarious joke. It was to suggest that, like, he's a hero for the things that he says, and his family has to suffer the consequences to the point where it's, it, and, and it means so much to him to be able to do this and to stand up for all of the uh, unrepresented people of the world that he, like, puts his marriage at risk. Like, his, his wife is fucking furious right. with him because he doused his child with what he thought might be anthrax, which is a thing that didn't happen, right? Like, it's just, it, it simply didn't happen. And this is a... Anyway, I'm going to read from the article real quick. Minaj insisted that though both stories were made up, they were based on quote-unquote emotional truth. The broader points he was trying to make justified concocting stories in which to deliver them. The punchline is worth the fictionalized premise, he said. But there's no the, – when, when he says punchline, he's not talking about uh, a joke that, that makes you laugh out loud. The punchline is – Fucking America is a terrible place for black and brown people, and look at the ways that we suffer at the hands of white supremacy. Right? The, the punchline is America is racist, and, and there's the no impact joke that it's there. having. Yeah, basically, it's like the impact that it's having to him and his family is basically like the substitute for the punchline, because basically that's the takeaway, right? Like this, and, and you know, like again, he's in our. Uh, age group. I mean, these jokes happen after, but like you know, in the aftermath of nine eleven, there was that anthrax scare. You know, there's like a, a period of time. So like, this is a plausible thing. Like some, you know, and so like to invoke that, people are gonna assume. Like, no reasonable person would think that that was part of you know a punchline. Like, you would just accept that as actually happening. Like, why would you question that part of the his storytelling? Right. Why would someone make up the fact that they opened a piece of mail in their house and then doused their kid with what they thought might be anthrax? Right. Like, why would you invent that when the underlying story is that apparently a piece of mail got sent to Netflix that Hassan Minaj himself never actually handled that was then opened up and a mysterious powder was inside? But, like, it's not clear that it was a threat. And that's not to say that there was – that no death threats ever came his way or that no violent language right. ever came his way. But it is certainly not the same thing as insisting that this thing happened. And and then like to get on your high horse and to say that it's in service of some, because it's not in service of a joke. It's in service of some idea about the world right. uh, that only serves to, again, to complement uh, the, the moral righteousness of your own audience which is what a lot of his audience is. It's just people sitting around aghast at the racism that Hassan has experienced as a brown man in the world and and effectively complimenting themselves for not being uh, a party to that racism. This is a guy who built his entire first special around a story that he tells about a girl that he dated in high school who when he showed up to uh, take her to the prom... Uh, he gets to the front door, knocks on the door, and the family comes to the door. And I'll just actually, I, I have the clip pulled up, so I'm just going to play that here. Ding dong. Mrs. Reed opens the door. She has this look of concern on her face. And I look over her shoulder. I see this dude, Jeff Burke, putting a corsage on Bethany's wrist. And she's like, oh my God, honey, did Bethany not tell you? Oh, sweetie, we love you. We think you're great, and we love that you come over and study. But, you know, tonight's one of those nights where, you know, we have a lot of family back home in Nebraska, and we're going to be taking a lot of photos tonight. So we don't think it'd be a good fit. 
do you need a ride home? You know, Mr. Reed can give you a ride home. And I was like, no, I have my bike. I just biked back home and I played Mario Kart the rest of the night. And that's the nicest I've ever been dressed playing Mario Kart. So is implicating that his high school girlfriend had a family who was uh, full of such unconscionable racists that he would show up for the prom at her doorstep, ready to go, knock on the door, and have mom say, you can't come in and take our daughter to prom because we're going to put these pictures on Facebook or something in 2003. Like, I'm not sure exactly what the problem was going to be uh, with the taking of the pictures in the imagination here um, of the mom who doesn't actually exist or who does exist but didn't actually do this awful thing to this uh, human being. These lies that you're telling about these actual human beings who, by the way, you made it supremely easy to identify in real life who these people were when you put their uh, vaguely blurred out pictures on the screen in the age of social media. Uh, is that worth the punchline that I was wearing my, my, my tuxedo while playing Mario Kart? Like, that's in if, right. if what we're expected to believe is that in service of the punchline is I was well-dressed while playing Mario Kart, uh, that's a very not that good of a joke that doesn't seem uh, the old uh, – is the juice worth the squeeze <laughs> on that one in terms of the joke? Well, no, of course not because the punchline is not that he – that you giggle at the fact that he was wearing a, a bow tie while playing Mario Kart. You're, uh, the punchline is America is this awful racist place that when a good-hearted uh, kid who is good enough to help your daughter get through math class or chemistry class or whatever and to, and to be a friend but not good enough to be her date to the prom. That's the punchline, right. is that America is this awful place, and aren't we all so enlightened here as we sit in the audience or sit at home watching on Netflix? Aren't we better than those people? That's the punchline, and, and that's the only way that you can say that this is in service of some punchline. It's certainly not in service of any comedy, which puts a lie to the whole thing that Whoopi Goldberg was saying. Right, and you know, the that crowd reaction is basically, you know, like, Instead of uh, thinking of it as stand-up comedy, like almost kind of like a magic act, the big reveal is not that he was playing Mario Kart with fancy clothes. The big reveal is this racism that we all know exists. Like I lived it. Like it happened to me, and it happened in this way. Like that's the big punchline. So like that has to be true, right? Like because otherwise, you're right. The whole thing falls apart. You. That is a very weird way to get to the joke because you can get to I played Mario Kart with a fancy fancy clothes so many different well, it's ways. It's like that that weird like Hannah Gatsby thing. It's like this weird not comedy comedy thing that's happening. Right, but at least with her. So uh, so her example would be like if all of the stuff that she was going through was. Oh, I'm just saying that just for for the Netflix special. Like yeah, but I, like what's stopping them from? Telling like if comedians are allowed to stand up and tell like not really true stories right. as true stories right. for comedy, what's the difference between that and telling not really but kind of maybe based on true things stories for not comedy? Because when Seinfeld or Louis C.K. or whoever gets up there and does it, they're not fucking my moral betters. They're not up there telling me how much better they are than I am or than their audience is or than some, 
huge percentage of the people in the country are, right? That we're not being lectured in that same way. Louis C.K.'s act or any of these, most of these other successful comics acts are successful because they tear themselves down because this is a, this is a, it's a psychological uh, reflection or, or, or investigation of themselves, right? And in so doing, the really good ones, like when Louis C.K. was at his absolute best before all the masturbation stuff right. came out, he could dissemble his personality in such a way that it told a story about the country or about uh, the human condition in a way that you wouldn't otherwise necessarily have access to. That's the opposite of what's happening here. Yeah, but this it, is maybe just it's pure just different... self-aggrandizement and pure self-righteousness packaged in a in a way that uh, first, like it's not funny. Like that's the and, uh, like, yeah, like but whatever. Ma- but that's that's what a I'm matter of taste to some maybe extent. Maybe it's just a different kind of art form that we don't like. Right, but you, I think like there, there, there is, and maybe you know you're right, Laura. Maybe what does it matter at the end? Uh, but like I always thought, like you have these two different types of. I mean, there's more than two, but like you have the setup punchline, just what most people think of stand-up comedy, like you know Louis C.K. Uh, Dave Chappelle does a little storytelling, but there's also this other wing where it's almost like a one-man show, peppering in jokes, right? But Overall, it's a story you're telling, and so when that story is not true, it kind of undermines the whole structure. Like uh, another example would be uh, Birbiglia. Like it didn't even have to be something serious, like Anthrax. Like if he was lying about like sleepwalking, like to me it would just be like this doesn't track. Like why would you concoct this very specific and particular story just for the a couple of jokes you throw in there. I mean, the interesting part is the story and that it actually happened to you. That That's like the strength of storytelling in this case is because this actually happened and you have a way to kind of, your, your funny way of looking at things or your pointed way of looking at things is like something that people want to hear. Uh, and if that is like, oh, I was just kind of like cobbling, you know, one little thing that was he's true. also it's also it's also absurd to say that he's not trading on the idea that people will believe him yes that is simply that that's a, that that's a fucking lie if you like when you get up there and you tell that story in the way that you're telling it and you go full black uh, on the stage except for the one spotlight right like all the lights come down and you have the camera come right up to your face and you do the confessional thing that he's doing yeah. there that is uh, he's daring you to call him a fucking liar right that that is a that is a it's a provocation to say oh you don't believe me like I'm gonna stand right here and I'm gonna say these words right to the screen how dare you suggest that this is not an experience of mine that's what that is and if somebody had called him a liar they would have been derided as a racist and thrown out of the building right like uh, because like what do you mean why wouldn't you believe like he's getting up there and he's saying this thing of course this happened to him believe all women believe black and brown people right like just whatever it's the it's it's the it's the self-righteousness of the uh well i'm just doing comedy here and it's in service of the punchline at the same time that anybody who questioned him about that story i think in that moment now yeah now years later where it's he thinks that he can skate by or whatever like i don't know there's 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 something disgusting about it and and there's a this this notion of 
it's emotionally true or, or emotional truths. These are things that we allow only the people that we agree with to get away with, right? This is not a feature of one particular uh, way of thinking in the world or not. This is just a fact of, of, of sort of the human condition, which is that we will allow the people that we like to tell lies about the world if they tell lies about the world in a way that either flatters us or, or comports with the things that we already believe. Like, yeah, you may be telling a lie about this, but it's true enough. And that goes for the Donald Trumps of the world who tell absurd lies about the world but speaks to some some greater emotional truth or psychological truth in the people who think that he's basically uh, uh, telling the truth even as he tells these lies. And I'm sure that there are people who say— I don't fucking care that this didn't happen to Hassan Minaj because white supremacy reigns supreme and and this is the experience of some brown people somewhere and uh, it is wrong of you to uh, uh, denigrate him or tear him down. Uh, he's telling a, a truth that matters in the minds of many, many people. And that's fine for you, I guess. I'm never going to trust him again. I don't know why anyone else would either. I, I, um, are you surprised that because uh, this surprised me. Are you surprised that uh, Hassan, when when the the questions came in from the reporter and they said they were, you know I'm doing a story and would you be willing to answer some of my questions that instead of like you know trying to be defensive he just kind of leaned in with the yes of course I made that I cobbled these things up like are you surprised that like not only did he take that approach but also he knew the reaction would be who cares comedians make up stories all the time because. If I were him, I would just think, oh, shit, I'm going to get in trouble. This is going to set me back some, you know, six months or a year, or at least I'm going to lose my job uh, at The Daily Show. But, like, he didn't think any of that, and he was right. Like, are you surprised by that? No, because he's the right – he fits in with the right – he's accepted in the crowd. So, like, you're, if you're part of the tribe, you can do effectively no wrong as long as you continue to preach – uh, that which the tribe already agrees with, right? Like, I, it doesn't surprise me in the least. Uh, like, to me, the fact that he tells this story about a real identifiable human being, and it's simply not true, right? It's just, it's just simply not the case. And then that person goes on to experience, has a, has a supremely negative experience right. of being in the world yeah. as as a result of this, right? Like people come after her. People are upset at her and her family for being such awful racist shitheads when it just never happened. And you justify that, you just like because there are people who are bad in the world, that, that it's okay that this person had the ire of uh, Hassan Minaj's fans uh, turned against them. Like it's, it's just fucking gross it, because it's so counter to. The way that I want to present myself in the world, even in the, on the extremely small scale of this podcast, it would ma- I, it, I rebel against telling lies about how I'm thinking or feeling or about my experience. Sometimes do I like say something that is slightly more exaggerated, uh, and Lori like gives me shit about it because it's not exactly it doesn't comport exactly with what happened. Yeah. That happens, but it's on a, a continuum of being the truth. Uh, at least it's it's in the same fucking ballpark, right? And I wanted to connect it to the the Jan Wenner thing. You, did you see the interview that yeah. the founder of Rolling Stone did with the New York Times magazine? Uh, it came out. This one came out, I think, on Friday. This is the one where all black and blacks and women are not so smart. That that is the very uncharitable way. No, that was way. the philosophers. That was the philosophers and Bob. Okay. 
Right. Uh, Jan Wenner defends his legacy and his generations, the co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine on the legacy of boomers and why he chose only white men for his book on rocks masters. Now, if you want to talk about a person displaying their own emotional truth, Jan Wenner absolutely does that. Uh, this is a guy, and, and, and in a way that I think we should welcome in our society rather than try to condemn. And this is, this is a deeply, and I recognize this, this is a deeply unpopular and out of step take. Why? Uh, what is so uh, great about this uh, uh, expression of his? Like, uh, uh, which I I find uh, kind of ridiculous. But like, what is the uh, the upside for like people saying whatever is crawling through their minds? So to be clear, what what he said, uh, and I'll just I'll read a quote here. And actually, they have the audio. And I, if I can find it, I'm just going to play it. Actually, before I play the clip, sorry, David Marchese, who's the guy who did this interview. We've talked about uh, interviews that he's done before. He he gets good ones every once in a while. He asks him about the UVA rape case article, which was a big deal Why? when we first moved here because he was in charge of Rolling Stone at that. So I don't know if we've explained this fully. This is the guy who co-founded uh, Rolling Stone magazine uh, and in his capacity there also helped found the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and has uh, maintained a great deal of editorial control at Rolling Stone for much of its entire existence, apparently even after he sold it to some fucking publishing company back in 2017. But also, uh, he was there when the Jackie story at, at UVA came out, which is a... Is that the one where they had to retract? Yeah, yeah they, that's why we decided to move here. The UVA campus rape story is the one where this girl, uh, codenamed Jackie, said that she was gang-raped at a fraternity, and it turned out to be... Uh, fucking someone else's story. Is this the, completely made the up. One that, uh, it was someone ground, else's story. Some sort of, or is that a different? Yes. Article? Yeah. So he asks him, like, did your editorial judgment, in in sort of pursuit of the literary the literary merit of these sorts of stories, did that get you in trouble? He says, quote, the University of Virginia story was not a failure of intent or an attempt to be loose with the facts. You get beyond the factual errors that sank that story, and it was really about the issue of rape and how it affects women on campus, their lack of rights. In other words, uh, it wasn't literally true, but it was, it was truthy in a way that I want to continue to defend, right? Which is like – and that, that's what truthiness is. Bob, like, could, the, the, could you just do uh, the listeners a favor? Can you just read that next sentence? Other than this one key fact that the rape described actually was a fabrication of this woman, the rest of the story was bulletproof. <laughs> okay. So, okay. You like that? <laughs> Other than like the most important integral part of the story not being true – the rest of it holds up. That's a, I mean, why not just say, yeah, we, we, we screwed that up. It didn't meet our standard. You know, there's so many – you don't have to, like, throw the person completely under the bus, but you can massage it, the, the apology, but this is just ridiculous. What do you mean? Big picture story that was fully retracted? I mean, like, or that was retracted? Well, I mean, I don't want to defend whatever this is, but, like, if – if you have to tell something that's not true in order to shine the light on bad shit that happens so that it affects actual change, like, 
it's not where's the lie, but like what. What if the change that Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone affected was uh, the turning of these uh, tribunals that they have on campus from uh, fact-finding missions to kangaroo courts where people aren't even allowed to confront their accusers? And the Obama administration writes a series of uh, memos, a dear colleague letter that says, we will revoke the federal funding to your university unless— you uh, come up with a new method of determining the evidence in sexual assault cases where all you need is uh, a, a sort of feeling that this is something that is more likely to have happened than not in order to punish the individual uh, and to kick them out of college. All right. I don't know. Whatever. Um, what if the result of that is uh, – Rather than less sexual assaults happening on campus, instead, it's a profoundly negative impact on uh, a bunch of people who are falsely accused of of sexual assault on campus. I mean, whatever. Like, I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the ultimate consequences are of him publishing a story that was a lie. Uh, what I know is that you cannot know them, and it is better instead than to tell the but, truth. And also, yeah, um, it, it doesn't matter what story you're doing. I mean, you're striving to tell the truth, and if you didn't get something right, just say it. Don't try to, like, make some sort of weird connection to, like, well— these things do happen. Of course, all of the things happen, right? But like you said a thing, it didn't track. Just say we got it wrong. We'll, we'll be sure to not make the same mistakes going forward. I mean, it's not that difficult. All right. They then move on to this book that he's putting out this year called The Masters. And this is conversations with uh, Bono, Bob Dylan, Jerry Garcia, Mick Jagger, John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, and Pete Townsend, uh, all of which were conducted uh, – in his capacity as an editor at or the editor of Rolling Stone, except for the Springsteen one, which I believe was done uh, strictly for the purposes of this book. And you'll you'll notice about that list of names that I read that they are all legendary rock and rollers who are also happen to be white men. Right. Uh, and and so uh, David Marchese says, uh, this is a history will speak kind of question. There are seven subjects in the new book, seven white guys. In the introduction, you acknowledge that performers of color and women performers are just not in your zeitgeist. I think is the phrase which, to my you mind, use. is not plausible which, for Jan Wenner. To my mind, is not plausible for Jan Wenner to say Janis Joplin, Joni Mitchell, Stevie Nicks, Stevie Wonder. You know, the list keeps going, not in your zeitgeist. What do you think is the deeper explanation for why you interviewed the subjects you interviewed and not other subjects. Well, let me just, I, I get that. Carol King, me, Madonna. I mean, there's a, there's a million examples. Okay. I, um, when I was referring to this, I was referring to black performers, uh, not to the female performers. Okay. So just to get that accurate. Um, in terms of the female performer, I mean, the selection was not a deliberate selection. It was kind of intuitive over the years. It just fell together that way. You know? So I interviewed the people I interviewed had to meet a couple of criteria, but it's just kind of my personal interest and love of them, you know, but having to do with insofar as the women, I mean, there were just, none of them were as articulate enough on this intellectual level. Oh, stop it. You can't say that. You're, you're telling you, me Joni Mitchell is not articulate enough on an no, no, intellectual? No, 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 what no, do you no, mean? No, no. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. I'll let you rephrase that. All right. Thank you. Uh, 
none of them I thought could get to <clears throat> the I mean Joni Mitchell, yes. I mean, I mean, but let me just say it's not that they're not creative geniuses. It's not that they're inarticulate, although go have a deep conversation with Grace Slick or Janice, please be my guest. Or Cass, Elliot, wonderful person. You know, Joni was not a philosopher of rock and roll. She didn't, in my mind, meet that test, not by her work, not by other interviews she did. The people I interview were the kind of philosophers of rock, the, the, of the black artists. I mean, you know, Stevie Wonder, Crowley, you know, they're genius, right? These are genius artists. <clears throat> I mean, I suppose when you use a word as broad as the masters, the fault is using that word, you know, but uh, maybe Marvin Gaye. You just, I could cut Curtis Mayfield or, I mean, they just didn't articulate at that level, you know? Well, but how do you know if you didn't give them a chance to? Because I read their, I read, I read interviews with them. I, I I listen to their music. I know you can intuit from the music and the lyrics they write, the kind of things they're writing about. I mean, look at what Townsend was writing about, or Jagger was writing, or any of them were writing about. You know, and they were kind of deep things about a particular generation, a particular spirit, and a particular attitude about rock and roll. Not that the others weren't either, but these were the ones that could really articulate. Don't you think it's actually more to do with your own? interests as a fan and a listener than oh, and anything that, particular yeah, I, to the artists that you're talking to. I think the problem is when you start saying things like they or, you know, these artists can't. Really, it's a reflection of what you're interested in more than any ability or inability on the part of these artists, isn't it? That was my number one thing. The selection was intuitive. It was what I was interested in. Yeah, absolutely. And still, who would you have me interview today you think could articulate the philosophy of rock and these times in that way. You know, for just for public relations sake, maybe I should have gone and found uh, one black and one woman artist to include here that didn't measure up to that same historical standards just to, to avert this kind of criticism, which, I mean, I get it. I knew and I had a chance to do that. And I just, I, you know, I, I maybe I'm old fashioned. And I mean, I, I wish in retrospect I could have interviewed Marvin Gaye, maybe have been the guy, you know, mm. I mean, you know, maybe Otis Redding had he lived been the guy, you know. You interviewed Hendrix back in the day, didn't you? Yeah, did you want me to put that in? No, no, I I'm asking, but my next question was, how How was that? How was that interview? <laughs> well, I was. it was in the first year of Rolling Stone, so I was considerably a newbie at that point. Secondly, well, I went over to those hotel room. We got completely loaded together, and I came back to the office with a couple of hours of tape, and it was kind of reassembled it into something readable, and it was published. I looked at it again to see if there was something off. <laughs> and it was interesting, you know, but it wasn't, you know, the kind of deep dive that I'd done with all these other people. And to me, the it had to be a deep dive at that level. And uh, these were the smartest guys in the room, both as, as this group of kind of white middle-class guys versus black guys versus women and the... They're, they each kind of had different burdens to deal with and and shaped their articulation of rock and music and what they wrote to those burdens. You know, the ones in this book are the ones that I shared that burden with. All right, mm. I will stop it there. Uh, apologies for the length of the clip, but I think it was worth playing. Obviously, he says things that on the surface uh, and really even no matter how much you attempt to massage them, one could argue uh, are are bad and that are we're obviously going to upset some people and in fact 
uh, immediately did to the point where there was an emergency meeting of the <coughs> of the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where in uh, 20 very short minutes they decided uh, all but unanimously with uh, just Jan Wenner and one other guy uh, voting uh, not to get rid of him, uh, to to kick him off of the board of the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the interest of uh, protecting the brand, no doubt, uh, to say nothing of the of the whatever sort of moral weight you might put behind that sort of an act, I suppose. Um, would you like to articulate any preemptive anger at my defense of what's kind of like do you what is your reaction so, what is what what is your reaction to what he said there and that as an immigrant <laughs> which hat am i wearing now uh you know the the first thing that jumped at me is i know this is just um in you know, like a interview for the sake of like the print edition right so like he doesn't have to be articulate when he's speaking to the journalist but i just do find it funny that like his the strength of his argument was that these people were articulate and he's getting in deep shit for his lack of articulateness because like that's going to have to be his explanation when he does the, his mea culpa, right? To say, I did not express what I intended in, in the most articulate way. I didn't mean that, you know, black artists and women artists are dum-dums and like Jagger and Bono are these smart philosophers. Like I, I just, it came out wrong or these are just my favorite artists and they're alive. So like, you know, uh, and by the way, it's too reductive to say that they're white. I mean, that's one thing they have in common, but also they're great artists, blah, blah, blah. Right. So like he's going to have to like eat the inarticulate charge to kind of get out of this. And I think that's kind of amusing in this situation. Beyond that, I, I don't know where, he lands. I mean, is he? Because like the further the he kept on digging himself into a deeper hole, right? Because he like the reporter was actually trying to kind of save him a bit. Like, I mean, to me, it reads like just these are your you know your favorite people, and like he could have just ended there. Like that's what I meant. I'm sorry. This is a and he could have just said some bullshit like this is a not all inclusive. You know, I'll have another you know volume two of the masters or whatever, and I'm sure that'll include some other people. But like he just kept on going back into like I could have just just you know given lip service to one black and a woman just to for PR reasons, but fuck that. Like so like he just kind of I don't know how you come back from that last part. Like that part is like like the only reason why I would ever include a black person or a woman in the future would have to be because I got so much shit when I did it the other way, right? Like so it's kind of hard to believe in in future iterations of the masters or whatever the fuck he wrote about the question of relevance here i think is whether or not jan wenner is correct in his assessment that careful i'm i i I, yes careful also i think that that speaks to abe's criticism about wenner's performance in this interview which is that the reason that in large part he's not articulate is because of this obvious you should be careful right. here thing that is going and on then right he wasn't. Like, there's an el- <laughs> by the way what's the point of <laughs> no and then he and then yeah to be fair he then he then largely was not careful um but that's like that's how you are an iconoclast who runs fucking rolling stone for 50 years right like that's <laughs> it's by being the person that you are and not by being fucking particularly careful right. but whatever I think that you have to consider the possibility that he is right about the narrow thing that he is saying, which is – I don't think that he's saying that 
black folks and women cannot be geniuses in their own right. But in the narrow way that he's defining what interests him about rock and roll or about the philosophy of rock and roll, those people don't speak to it in a way that he can identify with, or at least he never had that opportunity uh, based on uh, things that he read in, that they would say or the way that they presented themselves as artists. Like there's an, there's an element of this that to me is there's, – there's only a certain kind of person – who takes rock and roll as seriously as Jan Wenner does, right? Like, and, it, and it's and it, there's a there's a privilege to some extent in being able to take rock and roll that seriously. It's sort of like the way that Chuck Klosterman examines pop culture, right? Like the sort of utter seriousness with which you take these things can lead you to. Only, I mean, I, it's, I, I'm not, ironically or appropriately, I'm having trouble articulating this uh, in a way that makes any sense at the moment. But I think that it is entirely likely that it is true that only these assholes like John Lennon and Mick Jagger and Bob Dylan, like it, it, it makes sense to me that Jan Wenner would believe that only these dudes were the ones who who took this stuff as seriously as he did. And that does speak directly to Mar- uh, David Marchese's question, which is like, this is, this is just the artists that you like, right? Like this yeah, is, is yeah, these yeah. are just your favorite artists, but yeah, the thing that he likes about them is particular to these people in a way that I think is actually kind of fair, right? The self-seriousness, this belief that you can actually like have meaningful social and 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 uh, uh, world-changing effects on the world is this is is the domain of a certain kind of person, right? That you could take your stupid art and your silly little rock and roll songs and have an impact on the whole world uh, is sort of the domain of the obnoxious white guy right like that, that, that's what we excel at to a certain extent is this is this notion of of self-aggrandizement based on the fucking bullshit that you think is cool right like they, they, so because mick jagger thinks that the bullshit that he thinks is cool can change the world and jan wenner agrees with him like it doesn't surprise me that the guy from In Living Color, the the uh, black rock and roll band from the late '80s and early '90s, doesn't have that same sort of feeling about rock and roll that uh, Bob Dylan does. Or like fucking Bono. Or fucking Bono, right? Like these are people who fully believe in the transformative power of a three minute pop, uh, three minute rock song, to change the face of the planet. Who else has the privilege of believing that sort of thing besides uh, the fact that you said privilege like that's what it is so, right. you, so you, like, it's not exactly a defense of Jan Wenner, which is why I didn't want to present it as a defense of Jan Wenner, who I think is has a very sort of narrow understanding of the world and in a way that is a problem. But what it is, is it's incredibly revealing of one of the primary cultural gatekeepers of the last 40 years of, of pop culture or, or, or even longer than that at this point of, of the last 60 years of pop culture. Right. Uh, this guy has uh, made made it 
easier to understand the world that we've lived in since 1967 or, or since he was born in 1946 by explaining uh, the way that he sees the world to us and to uh, decide that because he was honest in that way uh, and given us a greater understanding of the way the world has been for the last 60 or 70 years, that he must be thrown out of the culture at this point, that he must be done away with, that he no longer has a place in it, strikes me as the wrong sort of move. Right. I think the second part, you know, this discarding thing, I'm not for either, but, you know, it does seem like people kind of treat it as like a this like limb wound that you just need to just kind of just cut off to kind of save the host. So like the rock and roll hall of fame, like we're going to get flack because of your bullshit left leg. Fuck off, chop, you know, and then you can just move on. Right. And so I think the calculation is a shit about the rock and roll hall of fame. But I think if they kept him on, if they just, you know, took the Bob approach, ah, come on, water under the bridge. You said something stupid, but you know, they'll just get all the flack. So they're just kind of throwing him under the bus, but just, so I do want to make one point because like, to me, like, there were so many opportunities for him to not fuck it up. And he screwed it up at every opportunity because, like, for starters, he accepted the premise that he uh, let race factor into his final seven, right? Because the way the question was asked, what do these people have in common? Uh, they're white, right? And maybe that's the, the first thing people would think of, although if you showed me the list of that, I mean, I know Bono is white, but like to me, Bono is just like Bono. Like he's not like <laughs> white. Uh, but like you would, you know, if you poll people, they would, for word association, like it wouldn't always be the first thing, white, M- maybe man or something else, you know, like whatever it is. Not only did he accept the premise that race played a role in his selection, but he linked into. So it. I don't think I don't think that he accepts but the premise. I think he that didn't he, accept the premise because that, what did he 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 kind of goes into well. Maybe some black person that does whatever. They're not at that intellectual. Like he, he went knee deep. He doesn't say that they're not at the into. I don't think that he. So I again, I don't want to defend yeah, him. The part of the show where you start screaming. Right, but uh, what he's doing here is he is saying that he did not encounter a black or a female rock and roll artist who took rock and roll to be as serious as he did, who took the, the, the philosophical underpinnings of it, who took what he believed about rock and roll in this, with the same degree of seriousness uh, that, that people like Bono and, and Mick Jagger did. I don't think... He doesn't say it at all gracefully, right? He doesn't say it at all. He's just saying, like, had there been someone who did... Uh, take it this seriously. Instead, I got fucking wasted with Jimi Hendrix, and we didn't even uh, get around to talking about it, and now he's dead, so it's not like I can have a great conversation with him. But maybe if I sat down with Marvin Gaye, and uh, under the right circumstances, he also, we would have shared a certain understanding of the importance of rock and roll and the philosophical underpinnings of it, and and he would be in the book. But he isn't, because I never uh, had that opportunity, or I never took that opportunity. He does sort of quickly say women aren't as articulate. Right. I thought I read like, something along pretty- those lines. But again, at every point, he's still going through with the premise being valid. Because, uh, like, is he – like, because if I'm reading the, the article, I'm thinking that he is filtering out. Like, the, he's made some sort of judgment about black artists and women artists. Like, that they're not at that level, right? So he's almost filtering them out. Like, he's kind of telling you that there's a prejudice that he has. His worldview is that – I, at least in my experience, I've never 
come across a black artist or a female artist that is at the level of Bono, like of this philosopher, right? Uh, and so, like, he's doing some sort of math. Like, he's again, he's accepting premise. He's doing some sort of math to saying black people, black artists and female artists, they make great music and all that, but they're not at the level that I'm looking for for the master's list or whatever, right? So basically now that means that you are taking that into consideration. Instead of just rejecting it outright, it's like I looked at every artist and these seven is who I came up with, that they're all men and that they're all white. Maybe there's some prejudice that I'm not recognizing, but that, that's not what I went into it thinking. I just looked at all the artists and I came up with these seven and let that be that. Right. The problem is that the selection was done over the course of many decades right. at this point. This this is not a series of interviews that he's conducted in the last 18 months. This is a series of interviews that he did for the magazine for the last 50 years, right? And so, yeah, I'm. there's no doubt in my mind that it's possible that some fundamental prejudice that prevented him from taking seriously female artists uh, went into the fact that he never had an interesting three and a half hour long conversation with a woman who shared his philosoph- the the his belief in the philosophical import of fucking rock and roll. Um, but also, I think it's incredibly likely that those people actually don't exist. Yeah, I think you're the- right. I think, that, <laughs> but I think he also doesn't know that. No, I think but he, he might he not. Should. He might not know it. Uh, he might not have given him himself the chance to be exposed to it, but I think that there's a reasonable chance that uh, imagine a, a bunch of kids playing with Legos in the dorkiest fucking way imaginable, and like, and they every day they go to the Lego table and they play fucking Lord of the Rings Lego, and it's this weird like mystical magical fantasy land, uh, and and it's just uh, the the four fucking nerds in the in the fifth grade class, and they're all doing the same thing every day, and they they take it incredibly seriously, and then you take one of those kids out of the group and you ask him, uh, why don't you play with any of the girls in the class? It's like, well, because none of the girls take our nerd shit nearly this seriously. It's like, well, have you ever given them the chance? I don't know. We never told them not to. We never told them not to show up. But they show up and they hang out in the at the Lego table for 20 minutes. And they are clearly not as invested in our uh, fantasy Lord of the Rings right. bullshit well, and as anybody else is. because they have other it's shit like, yeah, to worry about. Right. You're a fucking nerd. You can do whatever you want to do. Uh you're not wrong exactly that they don't care and there's a certain amount like i was trying to say earlier there's a certain amount of privilege it's the privilege in being you're able right. to play in this stupid fucking sandbox and pretend like it's the most important fucking thing in the world when sorry that janice joplin has uh broader concerns uh, as it turns out or that uh, black artists have broader concerns uh and that they don't think uh with good reason by the way that rock and roll is going to fundamentally change uh human nature or the the way that we organize ourselves in a society, uh, maybe because they're living a little bit closer to reality than you are, Jan Wenner. But I, the, the point, the only defense that I have here is that it's interesting that this is the position of someone who has been one of the primary cultural gatekeepers uh, of the culture uh, for my entire life, certainly, and also that I'm not sure that uh, he's wrong uh, on the on the underlying premise not not that like somehow 
uh, blacks and women aren't articulate or that they're not geniuses in their own right, but that maybe in the very peculiar way that he imagines a genius to be about rock and roll, there might not be any uh, who fit who meet that criteria. But the fact that you can realize that about him in I don't know a day. I don't know how long you've been thinking about this, but he doesn't realize that about himself is the discrimination and the racism and whatever that everyone is talking about all the time. Yeah, it speaks to the blindness that living your emotional truth can give you if you're not careful or if you can't recognize it yourself, right? right? But this is all just yeah. uh, self-inflicted. Like, I think, because, like, again, like, that you have seven artists, like, that somebody makes a connection that they're white, that should not mean anything. I mean, what do you, I mean, there are many explanations for that, right? But I guess that raised this issue for this reporter. His response was like so bad that he, he kind of almost like confirmed the suspicion that I would not have had. Like there was not, I, I would not have made the connection like, oh, this guy's doing some sort of race thing or whatever, right? But like, or a, uh, a male thing. Uh, but when he kept on going about, well, come on, name me one that could be at that level, that kind of tips your hand. Like to me, like that's kind of like, how okay, you- but if you can't, if you cannot give him right. one, then no, 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 <laughs> you what should are we not, talking no, about Don't make here. something up. And, and to his credit, he said, like, yeah, I guess I could have just done that just to kind of keep up appearances. But the problem is that he is, by his answers, suggesting that, like, there's something significant about an artist that a woman – like they can't reach that level, or black artists can't reach that level. I mean, maybe. Right. Also, that's... who takes themselves more seriously than fucking Madonna? <laughs> like that's the... Pete Townsend, <laughs> Bono. Fuck off. His responses did not help his cause. That he did not let those things factor in. Madonna is not a is not a. I don't think plays into that list in the way that. I mean that's the thing the the when you set up the terms of the conversation in the way that he has I don't think that he's wrong and that's what he's simply describing the world as it is that is revelatory of I think rock and roll in a way that is interesting and and meaningful and is much more interesting and meaningful than whatever sort of personal biases might be going on in this dude's head I get it. I understand the upset, and I certainly understand why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame feels that they have to cast him out. But I want you to go and Google up uh, all of the great name name all of the women who belong in the Hall of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who aren't there yet. And you know what you get? You get a bunch of country music and pop artists. You get a bunch of not rock and rollers uh, who belong in the Hall of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, and that's fine. Like a Hall of Fame, halls of fame are fucking stupid. Like, who cares? Right? Nobody fucking cares. But if you're going to have a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and then you're like, you know what? Uh, fucking Patsy Cline and Dolly Parton probably need to be in it. It's like, well, then I don't know uh, what the conversation is that we're really having here anymore right. because those those people uh, but, don't do rock right, and roll. But the main thing is that, you know, no matter what the, ma- the makeup of the artist currently in the Hall of Fame, like whatever – the breakdown is, I don't know what it is. You know, I'm sure it's male heavy, white heavy. Uh, it's like 90% right. male. Yeah. So like you can, you can live with that, right? Basically just saying, you know, we looked at the, the, the artist and the music and the catalog and blah, blah, blah. And these are the people and it just broke that way. We'll have to live with it, right? That's fine. You can live with that. But if you draw conclusions from the makeup of the hall of fame and that kind of reinforces your worldview that, that be, 
90% or whatever the number is, that must mean that uh, there's a ceiling that the other demographics butt up against and they can't get beyond that. And th- and that's why it's ninety. No, no, no. I think the problem. The, absolutely, the problem is if you assign a value judgment, as as Jan Wenner no doubt does, to the pursuit of of to like some sort of uh, the 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 superior intellectual pursuit of rock and roll, and you say no, I don't think women are capable of doing it. I don't think that, that uh, it's not clear to me that that's what he's saying, but I think that speaks to. Again, I mean, I, I don't want to have to say it three fucking times, but I think it speaks to the reality of the situation in an interesting way, which is that uh, this is a pursuit of a certain type of person who is in the world in a certain kind of way, uh, who uh, tends to have this sort of identity. Should I play a uh, quick Strassman? No. It's late. We're going to talk about movies and football. Like, we don't have time for Strassman. Wait till next week. Or are you going to be a bad husband? Yep. I'm going to be a bad husband. <laughs> yeah. you, you can't set me up like that and then expect me not to just uh, immediately drop in. Although the, maybe now you're tipping your <laughs> hand. It must be a good one if uh, you wouldn't uh, trot out like some bullshit. Abe, you better take notes because there's like three. <laughs> Indigo, a largely forgotten crop, once was one of the South's most profitable exports and it's making a comeback. CBS's Mark Strassman reports how Indigo is bringing together the country's past and present. Sheena Myers makes her Indigo soap, knowing nothing can scrub away South Carolina's past. There's a whole history behind what I'm doing. It's deep. Yeah, it's real deep. Indigo dye's beautiful color comes shrubbed and shrouded by an ugly history. In the mid-1700s, wealthy South Carolina planters called it blue gold a labor-intensive cash crop produced by the sweat of enslaved people. For Myers, it's personal. Very personal. But to you, it's not just anybody's history. Right. This is my family history. Among those enslaved indigo workers, her great-great-grandmother. Because they were humiliated, now I'm being honored. And me being honored is like I'm honoring them as well. I don't think they would ever have thought in a million years that they would have a a descendant creating things like this. Her company, Genotype, sells indigo-based skincare and medicinal products for psoriasis, peptic ulcers, bronchitis. Annual sales top $1 million. Immerse it. Immerse it down in. Down the road, Precious Jennings grows indigo to process its natural dye powder. Think of it as farm to fabric, digging for healing, in the dirt of a former plantation. Every day I come onto this land, I honor and think about and give gratitude to the people that were here and enslaved on this land. Myers wants to pass her business and family history to her three sons. If they keep this business alive, it won't disappear. Keep growing the indigo. Mm-hmm. The history stays alive. It will continue. It will continue. Growing a new indigo legacy, rich in oh. humility. For I in America, Mark Strassman, Charleston, South Carolina. Abe did CBS News's senior national news correspondent uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, get off a good one. Yes, he did. Actually, this uh, that was quite enjoyable. Like uh, Mark Strassman's back, you know. Strassman gets off a good one. I don't know if they give out uh, Emmys uh, for newscasts. No, your show is the only one Emmys that cares. For a minute fifty-seven <laughs> yes. long or less. Uh, news didn't, hits. Didn't Alec Baldwin win like a best supporting whatever for like seven minutes of like uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn, Glenn Ross? You know, it's that kind of powerful performance. You know, 
This is peak Strassman trying to narrate a certain series of lines into this story yes. where he's sitting there and he's just he's just he's throwing the line out to the woman who's sitting there on the bench with him and slowly reeling her back in trying to get her to say the right thing like three different times it's a classic of the genre of uh of make sure you get a lot of coverage of me reacting amiably yeah. to the person that i'm interviewing right there's multiple cutbacks of strasser just having the time of his just life nodding and, and, and nodding yeah. along and smiling we get we get nothing can scrub away south carolina Carolina's past. We get indigo is shrubbed and shrouded by South Carolina's history. I don't know what it means to be shrubbed by history. I'm not it means sure. you're shrubbed. What is what it's are we like talking you're about? buried in shrubs. And digging for healing in the dirt like of a time, former plantation. Like next time I don't like something, I'm gonna say shrub that thing. Uh, and yeah. you will... I disagree, Abe. I don't think that Strassman got off a good one. He Fa- he got off a to series. Fabric? I mean, come on, this guy's just Fa- yeah, farm to fabric. Uh... Yeah, farm to fabric was was good. Um, you know, what a great talent. You've been listening to Cast Iron Brains, a podcast with Bob Nabe. Find the show on places. Head on over to brainiron.com or castironbrains.com. It's the same place for a show note. You can also send us an email, brainironpodcast at gmail.com, as did listener Steve at the request of uh, Lori last night or last week, or maybe I said it. I was like, I didn't yeah. request anything of Lori anyone. Lori insisted that we don't have any listeners. And I said, well, if you're listening, send us an email. And Steve obliged. He said, I'm listening. Uh, and I don't think I responded to Steve. But if I were going you're to. You're a bad friend and cousin. Respond to Steve. I would have said, Steve, that's great. There's no accounting for taste, is there? <laughs> also, you're responding now. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I don't know what anybody's doing listening to this. Hey, oh, the, 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 the PTO people that skipped the, the intervening 90 minutes. Yeah. Good thing you missed all that. Don't read the episode description because we <laughs> <laughs> definitely didn't talk about that stuff. That's right. <laughs> Abe, did uh, you make it to the movies this week? I did. So uh, I went to go see A Haunting in Venice, uh, and uh, as I usually do with movies I didn't care for too much, I will just say it was fine. Like, you know, these uh, whodunit kind of Agatha Christie kind of movies. Like, like, oh, I think it's this, one of those. This is yeah, the latest like, Kenneth, the no. Kenneth Branagh as Hercule Poirot right. uh, this doing this the detective thing. This one was like they kind of like uh, added, injected some like, horror or at least in the trailer it kind of it didn't read the same way as the other ones did but like yeah it looks like a, like a supernatural thriller yeah. more than a murder mystery so, but basically the, the, it's the same beats as all the other like movies Scooby like Doo. Oh, th- this person did it not as good as not as good as the other two that that well, have come it's before probably better than the one with uh gal gadot with her uh the death of, so you, better than death on the nile All right. yeah be- better than that yeah not as good as the first one whatever that was uh orient express or whatever it was uh so on Saturday, uh, there weren't any other movies for me to watch, uh, but I did go to a live stand-up comedy show uh, oh. at the uh, the Fox Theater here in Atlanta, and this was SNL's uh, Michael Che and Colin Jost, oh. like basically and, and together. It, and it wasn't clear, yeah. To that point, it wasn't clear to us. Like a friend of mine, like a few weeks ago, was like, "Hey, I got an extra ticket on Saturday, then whatever," and I'm like, "Yeah, I'll come and watch." But like initially. It's just Colin Jost and Michael Che. So you're thinking, are they going to try to do some like 
SNL weekend update kind of thing? Like, what's right. going on? It wasn't clear, like, what was happening. I assumed that they were going to just do their, you know, I'll do my stand-up for, like, 40 minutes, you do your stand-up for 40 minutes, and then we'll come together at the end. They had an opening uh, stand-up. So it kind of worked that way. Basically, they had, like, a, um opening act who was also SNL member. I've never heard of this person, like a brand new person. I forgot his name already, like some young kid uh, who's like the latest in the SNL group. Right. Um, and at the very end, they did come together, but it wasn't for, they're just kind of just shooting the shit. So there was no like actual weekend update style comedy, right? It was just like Michael Chase stand up and Colin Jost stand up. And it was fine. Uh, they are part of that group of people who insist that you have to put your phones and smart uh, watch on a in a pouch on a pouch and then oh, they so lock no it. no recording is even possible yeah. right so there's no recording they didn't even want you to use your phone for the ticket so we had to print it out basically it's like kind of going back in time so like for like three hours uh, it was kind of like you know uh, no sm- uh, phone stuff uh, what was interesting was that the the show started at like a seven, so we had to get there like a six fifteen, six thirty. This is on Saturday. I'm thinking Georgia will make quick work of uh, South Carolina, and I'll right. go because there'll be like you know information void for three hours, right? So like, I was like, there's no way it was going to be a close enough game to where like I want to know going into the Fox like what the score is. Uh, but they pulled away, so it wasn't an issue. But it was kind of trending that way, where like South Carolina was winning. Um, and yeah, they were up big at the half, right? Yeah, 14 it was to three. It was like five something. I was like, holy shit, I'm going to go to the, see the show and the fucking Cox may win. Uh, <laughs> that, that didn't happen. But the show was, you know, f- funny. Um, it was almost sold out. It appeared to be sold out. Like, there's no empty seat anywhere. I didn't know that they had that kind of pull. You know, that's I mean, impressive. You, you fill the fabulous Fox Theater just based off of your weekend update thing. That's, that's impressive. Yeah, and, and also, like, their material wasn't like, uh, uh, what's the nice way to put it? Like it's, it wasn't like fully polished. Like there were a couple of jokes where it looked like they kind of worked this out because it was a solid joke. You know, the setup, the punch, everything kind of worked. And right. then others are just kind of just like, uh, I don't know, like Trump. What do you guys think? You know, like just like just kind of working, working with through the new material. Here's right. what they were doing. Which yeah. I was like, come on, this is too big of a venue for that. Like usually you do that at the smaller venues, but whatever. Uh, entertaining <laughs> evening. Uh, paying twenty dollars for beer wasn't fun, but. Uh, it was $20 for a beer? It was like 18 or something. It was some ridiculous oh my price. God. And it was like a fucking line. It was like a line for everything. It's kind of like that part wasn't fun, but the show was a lot of fun. Well, that's good. We uh what did we do? We watched football. We watched football. That was it. That's pretty much it. I mean, Friday we watched Indiana Jones too. That's right. We watched Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom with the children. Highly uh, problematic. Don't watch it. Okay. It's pretty great. Uh, it's not as bad as I remember thinking that it was. I enjoyed it more this time than I have in the past. Uh, then we watched fucking baseball. Yeah, we watched some baseball. The Braves clinched the uh, division, I think number six in a row, and then proceeded to lose like five games in a row. Oh, we watched um, your favorite your favorite romance reality show. I gave oh. you the option of watching the Johnny oh, Manziel yeah. so documentary. We watched, so last Stop t- talking. I said I want to watch the Johnny Manziel documentary or what's the fucking show? Uh, shit or get off the pot. Uh, uh, the Ultimatum. Ultimatum season the third two. third season of The Ultimatum. Season three, Jesus. We skipped the one with the gays. Yeah. Um, because and of our chose, preconceived biases. Bob chose the reality show about 
about wife swapping over Uh-oh. the documentary about quarterbacks. That is that is a completely unfair way. Literally, uh, that's what happened. Uh, I said it when I watched the Johnny Manziel thing or the quarterback thing. I had been punished or, for weeks in a row watching fucking the Florida documentary. Meanwhile, I can't find my favorite line from the Florida documentary to write down because it's so good about Tebow saying... And then that guy, which his name I forget, drank too much Gatorade, so he was cramping. Like the way he he subtle this the subtle beautiful judgment of <laughs> this friend of his from fifteen years ago, just drank too much Gatorade, so he was cramping up. Only a only a a true and long I need practiced to find exactly what it was evangelical Christian can judge in the precise way that Tim Tebow judged his teammate so for drinking too much Gatorade. So good. Anyway. It's fucking Friday night. I just recently finally finished watching the garbage Tim Tebow and Florida Gator documentary. And Lori's like, well, we can watch the Johnny Manziel version of that exact thing. Or uh, we can watch Nicholas Shea and his wife torture these people who've decided that they would rather be have their fucking faces on television than uh, retain any shred of dignity. Uh, or any, up or get any regard to their uh, their future selves, uh, and I was like, "All right, we can laugh at these fucking awful people for an hour. That'll be fine." And we did. Yeah, See, a little change. And of then pace. we watched football on Saturday, and I was so tired, I couldn't stay up and watch the Colorado game. Same. I was so mad. It was like the highest rated. Uh, once again, this Colorado team is not doing. My big TV business. was watching it. I yeah. was asleep. Yeah, I uh, I also I think I passed out on the couch at like midnight or so, or shortly before midnight, uh, around halftime of that game, uh, and woke up the next morning, Sunday morning, very upset that Colorado had come back uh, because you know the uh, the the build up to that game, you know, the, the I guess the coach said something disparaging about Dion, and like they were like favored by a lot, and so when they were down, I was like, they need to have like a dedicated Dion cam. The rest of I just wanted to see him. They don't come need to the that. realization. Of like I'm going to eat shit after all that talk about oh we're gonna show them we're gonna put them in their place uh, we're gonna beat them up you made They're it personal gonna lose this and week Colorado nope. State had all the juice the the <laughs> there was a bogus pick six that like all because of a penalty on a successful field goal is the only reason that the pick six even ends up happening like it's it they 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 should have been up like 24 to three or 24 to seven at the half not just. 21 to 14 that they were and then colorado comes back and wins it like it is imperative on a number of different fronts that oregon and usc fucking dump truck colorado in the next few weeks like i think those are the those are either their next two opponents or two out of their next three opponents. opponents yeah yeah, and also, but you know, the thing is, it's like they now have a ready-made excuse. You know, first of all, they weren't expected to beat those two teams because they're better than, like, more so than like TCU in Nebraska and Colorado State. Uh, and also, like, uh, because of that hit that that happened to their probably their best player, right? That Travis Hunter yeah. guy. Well, I mean, Shador Sanders. is Yeah, really he's good, good, but like the other guy was like playing on both sides of the ball. Like he seems to be yeah. like really good. Like he's just everywhere. Uh, and so like without the services of him for the next two weeks, they were going to lose even with him. But now they can just say, Oh, we're a short, you know, 
one I'll of our best players. Let him have an excuse. And then, so like the the expectation is going to be baked into what happens. And if they upset one of the two, Good. which I don't think is going to happen, because their defense. No, USC is going to. Yeah. USC is going to do. It's going to be like sixty-five to forty or something. It's going to be an insane <laughs> game. Is, uh, I think. Is Bo Nick still playing football? Is he the yeah. quarterback for Oregon? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so that schmuck is going to get a nice little victory. Yeah, he should. I don't know. He tends to not do well in big games. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, not doing great in big games, Georgia had their first SEC. We didn't have a big game test, and it was ugly in that yes. first half. Uh, but they came back, and I mean, whatever Kirby does in that locker room, uh, this this was I... not so much the case last year, but two years ago, when this team, the 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 team from the first title run, had like. I, I never went back and compiled it, but their third quarters, I swear to God, were the greatest third quarters yeah, in the one, history yeah. of football. Like, whatever was happening in the first half of those games didn't fucking matter because in 21, that team would come out in the third quarter and just fucking eat souls. And that's what it looked like. Uh, we didn't see a lot of that last year, but that's what it looked like uh, in the South Carolina game. They came out of halftime and just fucking killed, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, I think they're still real... I think they're so real fucked from that kid dying. Oh yeah, I think there's a lot of so at the at the same time, and you can't control this sort of thing, so it's a crazy thing to sort of say. But if you're Kirby Smart, and what you want is to really reinforce the belief in these idiot twenty and twenty two year old kids' heads that they haven't accomplished anything yet, despite the fact that they've won uh, two national titles the last two years. Bad uh, play calling in the first half. Then what you do is you have these first three weeks. Like if if what you want to do is to make these kids hungry and to have to prove themselves moving forward, then you hope for these sort of middling to not that great uh, performances that they've done in the last in the first three weeks of the season, so that you can instill in them this notion that uh, you're not fucking shit yet and you've got to you still have to prove yourselves. And I mean. It's crazy to think that that's what's actually going on. That like he's sabotaging the team in some way. I refuse to believe anything else. <laughs> yeah, that is. Yeah. <laughs> I refuse. Given what they do when they're good, I yeah. don't believe right. that it's not somewhat intentional or weird Kirby um, mind control stuff. Or it's like it's like it's purposefully self sabotaging or something. Like somehow his his freak underlying animal nature knows like ah we can't be too good. So I'm gonna suck and Bobo's gonna suck for the first few weeks and then we're gonna turn it around when 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 it really matters. Even the first few weeks they can suck. Also, my dad for was the giving first me half of all of these games. My dad was giving me shit for all of the shit that I talked about Stetson Bennett yeah, last year. Yeah, I don't year. appreciate when you talk shit about Stetson Bennett, especially right now. I'm not well, talking I don't know any shit okay. about Stetson Bennett. I'm sure Stetson is going to be fine in the long run, uh, but I still think that like while Carson Beck has not been great. Uh, he has not he has not been bad in the particular way that Stetson Bennett was so consistently bad over the last couple of years. But I you know, like that Kirby in press conferences now is like, oh, you're going to question my quarterback choices. OK, yeah, let's see. OK, well, we've won two. The, so. the, th- the thing about uh, this Carson Beck guy, like, yeah, the, the, he didn't have the downsides of a, of a Stetson, but he has no upside of anybody. He, he's just like this, like, lifeless, just like, I'm here. I can, we he's just accurate got... at the throws he can make, but, like, there's nothing there. It just seems like he's just like no, a... No, it's your... Conf- he's fine. 
Stetson Bennett was so fucking charming and enjoyable that anyone following him right. is is going to feel like there's nothing there. Carson Beck has the the dead eyes and <laughs> affect of male model of a Zoolander extra. Yeah. Very male of, model. <laughs> Somebody in the background. He looks like Kate Moss. He is if Kate He's Moss very male model. If look. Kate Moss were a college quarterback. He w- it would be Carson Beck. Uh, it has that sort of sort of the dead. Seriously, do a Google image search for male model, and it's just like yeah, Carson Beck face. It, and every time weird they, alien faces. Every time they transition to the commercial, they always have like a, a, a graphic with it, that face of his and like some of the other players. But it's always like funny. He just has that face, just like almost n- stuff. Really looks like there's nothing going on back there. Just <laughs> probably isn't. Are but on, that's the but thing. No when you're used to Stetson Bennett with his just effortless, laid back charm thing, like you can't follow it with anyone except a total asshole or somebody very boring. Uh, one thing that I googled uh, in my rage this week about the Chick Fil A slash. Uh, your jokes don't translate for the Afghan refugees uh, situation. As I googled, is Chick Fil A halal? I'll, uh, yeah, can you can you put all of these different aspects of the things that you're mad about together in a single Google search? And it turns out I could. And it was, is Chick Fil A halal? Uh, largely, it's not. Unfortunately for my Muslim brothers and sisters out there, Chick Fil A is haram. So uh, you, you got to stay away. No, uh, no reasonable Muslim. You know, I, uh, I'm I'm well aware of. Uh, the, the Muslim world, uh, no one really honors what that person just said. People eat Chick-fil-A. So nobody bothers uh, Nobody no, bothers that's ridiculous. With I mean, you know, there's always – occasionally somebody argues that gelatin is like some sort of pork product and they don't eat like whatever's in that. But mm. everything else, yeah, Chick-fil-A. I mean, I my, my folks eat Chick-fil-A all the time. Well, I guess I'll see them in hell then. <laughs> Abe, have you got uh, anything else for us tonight? Nope. I guess that's all we've got for tonight, then, and we will talk to you next time. Later. I assume that it's spam, but I have one from a 626 area code that just says hi. I got one earlier today from a 458 number that says Hi, Charles. May a hello bring you a new mood. May a blessing bring you a new beginning. What are your plans for today? That's nice. That's not spam. Who the fuck is Charles? And what sort of a beginning to a conversation is that? You know, now that you uh, mention it, mm. I get those uh, texts so frequently that it didn't register when you were going through yours just now. But I get a lot of those where it's just a lot of like, hey, it's a new number. And it's like, they say, like, here's a link or something. Like, you know, like, instead of just building up the scheme, they just can't wait. Right. And they just open with the scam. It's like, you know, if you just open with, like, I, you know, like, because my memory shit. If you just said, like, hey, this is any name, any name here. Uh, and, uh, right. you know, like. <laughs> hey, it's Nathan. You owe me 25 <laughs> bucks from the bar the other night. This is my Venmo. Abe's like, ah. All right. Not again. <laughs> Pro- probably. <laughs> It seems like there's like no sophistication with these things. Uh, if you just play it a little, people are like, uh, I guess I owe you money. Sure.
some fucking asshole in my phone is Jerry Burris says, is this Georgia quarterback no good? And that was three days ago, and I haven't responded. <laughs> what a jerk I am. <laughs> the problem is that if I don't see the text, like, when the conversation is going on, because he's responding to... Jerry, he doesn't respond to my texts either, if he, it makes you he, feel any better. reacting to something happening in right. real time. I didn't see that he texted me in that moment. And then, so what, like six hours later, as I'm watching Colorado State, Colorado, I'm going to be like, give a discursive uh, opinion on what I think about the new Georgia quarterback? No. He leaves mine as though he's not read them as well. So, so like, did you read Sometimes I Jerry's? have not read them. Yeah, you should read the text messages your wife sends and your friend Jerry. You are right in the larger sense that there are certain texts that are that are sent in, like, uh, you know, sports context where, like, there's no real need to respond to this. It was, like, you know, related to something that just happened. Right. Send Abe, like, 22 texts in a row, but he's out at the bar not paying attention to his phone. I don't expect him to, like, individually go through and be like, yeah, yeah, I remember that play before the end of the first half, and that was bullshit. But what the fuck was Bobo thinking? But like, is that would this be, Georgia that would quarterback be good or not I know, I is a reasonable text? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's I'm not, not time sensitive. You're just a bad friend. Yeah, and sure. A, and not a best husband sometimes. <laughs> I believe I answered all your texts today. Did I, do I need to pull that you up? You did. You did great see? today. I felt loved. I got, uh, there's a couple of unread ones there. But that was the end of the conversation. I saw it and I swiped it away. Don't I swipe it away. I didn't need to respond to that. You're swiping your wife away. <laughs> the proceeding was created with 100% human content.